Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. As you're turning there, you might wonder a little bit about that prayer that I offered up of false teachers in the CRC. You know, the Lord just brought it to mind. This is something that's been, I've been exposed to more and more in recent weeks of, of ministers in the Christian Reformed Church who don't believe our theology, who um, in many cases serve in interim positions. I'm aware of two false teachers who are serving in interim positions in the Christian Reformed Church. And this is a serious, serious matter in the Christian Reformed Church. And so we can pray about it. Don't think that we should let it keep us up late at night, but uh, that we can entrust God. And, and this isn't just matters that are gray areas where, oh, I become aware somebody is a post-millennialist instead of an amillennialist. This is a very serious, basic Christian doctrine that uh, is being rejected by some ordained people in the Christian Reformed Church. And so the Lord brought it to mind. I want to explain a little bit of the prayer request because you could have been wondering what that was all about as I was praying. And I hope that you'll pray about it, that you'll pray for Pastor Zach and I, that we would be faithful men of integrity, teach what this book says, um, and don't just pray for us, but, but pray for um, ministers throughout the Christian Reformed Church and, and throughout the American church where there is so much confusion, so much bad theology. Um, we need to stand on the truth of God's word. So um, I hope that happens even as I teach tonight. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. The first part of Paul's teaching here about the coming of the Lord concerned um, first those who, uh, who already had died. And so Paul says, don't worry about those who have already passed away. Christ will raise them up at the last day. They will have an equal share in um, equal experience even of the return of Christ to those who are alive at Jesus' return. And so First, Paul taught about those who have already passed away, and then he turns to, um, what is your faith? Uh, what, what about those who are, are living? How do we think about preparing well for the return of Christ? So the previous section taught us about uh, the nature of Christ's return, and today Paul's attention turns a little bit more towards the timing of Christ's return. So Again, helping you understand the sections here. He first taught about the nature of Jesus' return. Well, what will it be like? And now he's going to talk about the timing of that event. How important is it for us to know the exact day, hour, and time of the return of Jesus? We'll find very clear teaching here, thankfully, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting uh, the reading at verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, 
and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, when the preacher on TV tells you he knows when Jesus is returning, he thinks he's solving a problem for you. He thinks that the solution to your concerns about the end times, the the solution for it is knowing the day and the timing of those events. He thinks that he's helping you to not be so concerned or not be so stressed or to have some knowledge that would prepare you for that moment. The theory there is that if you know the day, then you won't be afraid. That if you know the hour of Jesus' return, then you'll know how to get ready. But none of that is true. For example, if a young American soldier stationed in England in the month of May 1944 would have known the date of the Normandy invasion is going to be on June 6th, that actually has no effect on whether or not he will be victorious in battle. If that young man living in southern England knows the the day and maybe even the hour of the invasion that it's going to happen, he knows the date of the battle, it actually doesn't solve the problem of his fear of battle. So many in the history of church have thought that knowing the date and the time of Christ's return would result in people being ready. Such people have sensed anxiety about God's judgment on that day, but instead of searching for the biblical solution to that worry, to that anxiety, they seek an answer to the date, to the timing of Jesus' return. But Paul gives us far better teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He wrote that you don't need to know the day and the time of Christ's return in order to be confident, awake, and prepared for the day. That's the basic teaching that I want to share with you tonight. You don't need to know the day to be ready. You don't need to know the time in order to be confident at that day. You don't need to know the exact moment of when Jesus is going to return if you are going to be ready for him to come back. Paul encourages the Thessalonian church in this passage, telling them how to be ready, how to expect the unexpected arrival of Jesus. So we'll think of three questions that all of us might have or that the Apostle Paul poses to us and find answers concerning those questions in 1 Thessalonians 5, the first 11 verses. The first question is probably the most common one that we need to to ask and answer. Firstly, as you think of the return of Christ, are you afraid? Are you afraid? 
And the answer to that fear is in verses 9 and 10. Some amazing, an amazing gospel text. Um, This is one to put up on the plaque in your house. (laughs) This is one to put on the bumper sticker. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Are you afraid? There's the answer. If Christ has died for you, you'll live with him, whether awake or asleep, whether you you die before Christ's return or are living at the return of Jesus. That this is not a day of wrath for the people of God, but a day of salvation. So this is one of the doctrines that I love to share with people who are preparing to die, who are preparing to meet the Lord. If you forget that Christ has fully paid for all your sins, you'll be afraid to meet God. If you forget that Jesus has not destined us for wrath but obtained salvation for us, then you will be afraid of his return. If you trust in yourself or in your possessions or in worldly things, then that all will fade away at the return of Christ. And it is a day where one would be afraid of what will happen. But that's not the Christian life. That's not how the Christian thinks about that day. God has not destined us for wrath at the moment of our deaths or at the return of Christ's appearing. But Jesus has died for us so that we are, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. I cannot emphasize strongly enough how much more important that truth is than figuring out the timing of Jesus' return. It's so interesting, isn't it, that when Paul is addressing this matter of the timing of Christ's return, he does the same thing that we need to do in our conversations about that. So we could imagine a conversation with uh, maybe a coworker, a nephew or niece who is maybe a little bit wrapped up in this end times stuff and they want to know the signs of the times and what season it is and if Jesus might return soon. It is our job as Christians to turn it towards 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. (laughs) That the timing, you don't need to know. The date, you don't need to know. What do you need to know? The Lord Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, at that day, we'll live with him. The way to prepare is not to know the date. The way to prepare is to believe the gospel. That's the sermon tonight. (laughs) The way to prepare for Jesus' return is not to know the date. The way to prepare is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might be saved. Paul's earlier teaching uh, draws a distinction, earlier teaching before verses 9 through 10, draws a distinction between those who are living in darkness and those who are called children of the light. He uses that illustration to encourage the Thessalonian believers that although Jesus will come like a thief in the night, that they will be ready. So this thief in the night motif is actually a popular one in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus uses it. It's in the book of Revelation. It's in uh, Peter's letters. And here 
um, Paul is using it as well. So four of the major authors of the New Testament and are, are using this same word picture of a thief in the night. And that image could make us think that Jesus' return is going to be a bad thing for everyone. I think that even thinking about that as a child, that was kind of how I thought of the thief in the night image, that it's something that I should be afraid of, like being a little kid who's afraid of a robber breaking into your house at night. This is the emotional response that such an image could create. But brothers and sisters, this passage so clearly teaches that for the unbeliever, Christ will return like a thief in the night. It will be a surprise and there will be judgment. There will be a moment of suffering for the unbeliever. But, but he says, for the Christian, you will love his arrival. And so the thief in the night image is more about the timing of Jesus' return for the believer than the nature of Jesus' return for the believer. Jesus will not appear as a thief to you when he comes back. He will not appear as a thief. He will appear as the glorious king that you've been worshiping and longing to see. Um, again, shifting the, the word picture maybe a little bit, that Christ's return would be like a vision of somebody you've always wanted to meet <laughs> coming to your house. And thinking about that in the fullest, most profound way, somebody like Christ you've been worshiping, longing to see, and, and that's a, a day of rejoicing, whether it comes as a surprise or as something that you're, you're planning for and looking forward to. So someone who is, has not believed in Jesus, the return of Christ will be like a thief in more ways than just that it will be a surprise. But the work of a thief is to take away a person's possessions, isn't it? And at the moment of judgment, when the Lord Jesus returns, to judge the living and the dead, all of the possessions and idols that people have trusted in will be revealed to be worthless. And so not only will the timing of Christ's return be like a thief in the night for the unbeliever, but uh, the work of Christ in some small way will be a little bit like a thief rendering all of the possessions of the people who have not trusted in Jesus to be worthless. And so the way to be unafraid at that moment is to shift your trust away from earthly things and onto Jesus. The way to be prepared is to remember the gospel. God has not destined you for wrath. It's going to be a day of joyful celebration of salvation for God's elect. The second question, maybe a little bit of a strange one. Are you asleep? Are you drunk? <laughs> of course, this is in the spiritual sense. Uh, Paul wrote in verses 6 and 7, Then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And so he's writing about people who have lost their focus, who have forgotten, who have been distracted by uh, any number of worldly things, who have fallen spiritually asleep. What does it mean to be spiritually asleep? It just means to not care. To not really care all that much about the kingdom of God, the will of God for your life, serving the Lord Jesus Christ as an active servant. What does it mean to be spiritually drunk? I had to think about that for a little bit. 
What does it mean to be spiritually drunk? I think that refers to people who are, have kind of a frivolous attitude towards the Lord. And so maybe they're not asleep, but they have a frivolous or nonchalant or just sort of a come-what-may attitude towards the Lord Jesus, the Lordship of Christ in our lives. I think a little bit of what is so popular in American evangelical church culture, it's kind of a frivolous, we're just having a great time in church and just come and make some friends and then go on the rest of your way. It's, it's kind of like a spiritual type of drunkenness or stupor that people live in that is actually very popular in the American evangelical church. It's a frivolous attitude towards God, forgetting the reverence and awe that we should have of the Lord Jesus Christ of the power of God, the holiness of God. This kind of spiritual drunkenness is, I'd say, quite rampant in our culture. It's kind of the opposite of taking a sober, serious view of God. And then what does that look like, though? I mean, I've just described what it looks like to be spiritually asleep, spiritually drunk. What then does it mean to be spiritually awake or spiritually sober? Jesus taught a lot about this, particularly in Matthew 25. That's his great discourse on being prepared for his return. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking all about being ready for the day when he returns. It describes the person who is well prepared. And Jesus doesn't just do this in a general kind of vague way. He's very specific towards the end of Matthew 25. What does it look like for the person who is spiritually awake, spiritually sober? He says, come you who are blessed by my Father, again, he's returning, or he's referring here to those who are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven at his return. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's what it looks to be spiritually awake. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So the person who is ready is active. Activity is the opposite of being asleep. Activity and productive activity is the opposite of a kind of spiritual drunkenness, too. People are not useful when they're drunk, are they? (laughs) They're not active in a constructive way when they're intoxicated. But the Christian is active, is vigilant, is ready. These people don't just talk about following Jesus. Their ministry looks like Jesus' ministry. They are servants. They are compassionate They show that they love Jesus by how they treat other people, especially the poor. The denomination known as the Adventists places a great emphasis on being awake and ready for Jesus' return. There was an Adventist church in Sumas, the last congregation where I served. And um, really, there there were two churches in Sumas. There was the Christian Reformed Church, and the Adventist church. And I remember talking with the Adventist pastor, and I said, what's the, the character of your denomination? Tell me a little bit about what uh, the ethos or character or, or goal of the denomination is. And he said, right away, well, we're called Adventists because we're getting ready 
for the return of Jesus, for his second advent. That term advent we think of as a Christmas term, um, but it, it, it's not just about Christmas, it's about preparation for meeting Jesus. Advent means arrival. And so, of course, this season we remember Jesus' first arrival, and the Advent season helps us to get ready for a celebration of the incarnation of Christ, his first advent. But the Adventists, as a denomination, at least um, on paper, are really focused on Jesus' second advent. And so they're, they're living in the season of Advent year-round, we could say, preparing to celebrate the return of Christ. In Paul's letter, he warned that, um, that there will be many people who are not anticipating the second advent of Jesus. And he said that one of the reasons that, that they're getting distracted from his second advent is the promise of peace and security in a kind of worldly sense. Did you notice those terms that people will be saying peace and security, but upon those people will come destruction? And, and when Paul wrote that, it was a, actually kind of a, a little phrase that a lot of people would say in reference to the Roman government and what they could offer people. And so peace and security, though those two words together were a kind of political term that, that was a promise from the Roman Empire that if you trust in them, if you show loyalty to them, that you'll have peace and security in your city, in your province, in the place that you live. The idea is that the, the Roman Empire was so powerful that, that if you trust in their government, if you trust in their army, if you trust in the Greco-Roman way of living in general, then there will be a kind of peace and security that, that you're really looking for. People would read about the promise of peace on coins and on monuments. Pax, P-A-X, um, that means peace in Latin. And so that would be on coins and on monuments. And, and it would remind people or teach them that to trust in Rome is to have pax, is to have peace where you live. And there's even also examples of security being offered, pledged to... Um, a governor that's loyal to Caesar, and there would be security in that, uh, that area if they're truly loyal, if they're truly devoted to the Roman government, truly devoted to, to Caesar. And so Paul is warning the Thessalonians not to, have, to find peace or security in any kind of worldly government, no matter how powerful it might seem like the Roman Empire was, but instead to, to turn their eyes towards Christ to believe the gospel, where is, it's the only truly secure place to find peace and to find real security that lasts. So, connecting this to the overall point of, of falling asleep, we can see that the more we trust in worldly things, the more we are, are lulled to sleep in our preparation for Jesus' return. The opposite of being asleep or spiritually drunk is to be vigilant and active and awake, to get to work following Christ. Thirdly and finally, a question that's related to these things, are you prepared? As people think about preparation for Jesus' return, um, images of buying you know, uh, 
three months' food supply on Amazon might come to mind. Filling the bunker with Campbell's soup or beans or, you know, your staples. That's what some people think in terms of preparation for the Lord's return. That's not what Paul is encouraging here. Um, He's encouraging a spiritual preparation. And so if you ever think about the return of Jesus and your first thought is filling your pantry, you're focusing on the wrong thing. But if you think of Jesus' return and you think, I better get my heart ready for that. I better get my mind focused on the kingdom of God. That's the right way to prepare. What did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8? Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet of, uh, of for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So that's how we get ready. That's how we get dressed and prepared for the return of Jesus. So even though Jesus' return will be in some ways unexpected, if we're doing this and getting dressed every day to meet Christ, we will be ready. Again, we find Paul encouraging this triad of spiritual gifts that he loves to link together, faith and love and hope. And it's kind of interesting that Paul uses militaristic language in encouraging people to live with faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love sound like nice, really nice ideas, don't they? But Paul kind of um, uses this militaristic language to to note that it's really serious. It's not just lovey-dovey, wishful stuff. Faith, hope, and love, you know, almost you can imagine it on a greeting card, right? But he says, you're going to be in a battle, and you need faith in the battle, you need hope, And you need to love God and love your neighbors. So Paul uses militaristic language because he knows that there will be spiritual attacks against your heart, against your mind. This is the case for the Thessalonians, and it's still the case for us today. The defenses against those attacks are the armor of God. And in this case, kind of Paul shortens that list um, to include faith and love and hope. Now, in closing, uh, thinking again of the the D-Day analogy, one of the mistakes of the Normandy invasion as it went, um, I I love to study World War II history, um, and uh, it was one of the things that really really went wrong at D-Day was that um, the landing boats, in some cases, couldn't get all the way to the shore, and so they had to drop the soldiers off in... 10 to 20 feet of water. And so you had men jumping off the sides of the boats or jumping off the front of the boats, and they had to immediately, if they were going to survive, let go of their backpacks, let go of their weapons. And um, many did this. Some actually drowned very, very sadly in that part of the invasion. But as they were being dropped off, there a lot of them were letting go of what we could think of almost as their armor, as their weapon. And so they would get undressed so that they could survive the landing. But then if they made it all the way to the shore, then, then they're in trouble. They're exposed. And they were vulnerable and incapable of contributing to the victory until they were rearmed, in so many cases, by uh, a fellow soldier or um, picking up the weapon of uh, a fallen fellow soldier. So think of, of this preparation and being ready and being useful 
in the kingdom of God today. We've got to be dressed. We could even say armed with what? Not in any kind of um, militaristic sense as we got to go and conquer, but we have to be armed with faith, with love, and with the hope of salvation. So it's partly the goal of a worship service to get you dressed and prepared for the return of Jesus so that when the day comes, you're ready. The more comfortable you become wearing those spiritual garments, the more confident you will be at the day of Christ's appearing. As you live with faith in Jesus, as you live with the hope of salvation, as you love God and do things, practical things, actively to love your neighbor, it's all a preparation to be ready at that day. So if you feel a strong desire to know the timing of Jesus' return, remember that even if you knew that you'd still have to live with faith, hope, and love. So just rereading verses 9 through 10, this is really at the core of the Apostle Paul's teaching in this section and all of 1 Thessalonians as as a letter. Brothers and sisters, we look forward to that day because God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, make us ready. Wake us up. We pray that you'd give us sober minds, vigilant minds, ready to meet Jesus, like a soldier preparing for battle, ready for the day. God, we pray that you would make us ready, that we would put on your armor, that we would be active, that we would not be afraid, that each of us in the sanctuary watching at home would live with faith and hope and love. Oh God, we pray that you would send your son Jesus soon to repair this broken world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make everything new, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.